But during this time, I remember standing in front of the mirror on two different occasions, looking myself in the eyes and saying, you are going to lose everything if you continue to do this. This is Trey Lewis with Good Landing Recovery, and you're listening to The Comeback. We are back. I'm excited to be here with my friend Daniel Best in the studio this morning, talking about God's grace, His forgiveness, His mercy, and really just focusing on stories of people who were society's throwaways, that families and friends had lost all hope, but God in His mercy would reach down and bring us back out of the depths of active addiction. Um, These stories are meant to inspire. They are meant to encourage. You know, yesterday I was talking in a group at Good Landing about when we lose focus. When I was in the military, when I graduated basic training in 2004, I remember how sold out I was for the cause, that I was uh, anything that my training instructor said, that I would follow him into any battle, It didn't matter. I mean, I was just all in. I mean, if you cut me, I bled red, white, and blue. And those were exciting times. And the thing that I noticed is that years into active duty, even though everything looked good on the outside, even though my uniform was pressed, my boots were shined, my hair was in regulation back then, and my customs and courtesies, my salutes, all of those things were perfect. But the thing that I would notice is, is that when we would get a notification that there was going to be a training exercise that weekend, and we were going to have to go do some joint combat training with the Marine Corps, and it was going to interrupt my weekend plans, I realized that that was inconvenient, and I was my, my heart had shifted, though everything looked the same on the outside. And I think for a lot of us, we go walking through life about our day-to-day, and we've learned the subculture that we're in. We, we've learned, you know, the, the things that we need to say as a good Christian. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. You know, if we're in a 12-step program, then it works if you work it one day at a time. We know all the things to say, and, and everything can look perfect on the outside, but oftentimes our hearts have shifted away, and we don't even realize it until we need to be obedient, until it's some type of situation that calls us to, to really have to crucify our flesh, and we realize, oh my gosh, my, my heart is actually far away from the Lord, and because I didn't surround myself with people, or because I wasn't in the Word, or I wasn't doing my spiritual disciplines, that I've grown numb in spiritual things. And so part of what today is and why we tell testimonies, it's to inspire us again to realize God is still doing this work. He's still doing the miraculous, that there's no family member that's too far gone. There's no friend. There's no prodigal son. There's nobody who is too far gone that God is still able to bring them out of the depths of the darkest situations. And that's no different with Daniel's story today. And just been a privilege to be able to get to know him Uh, over the last few months. And Daniel, if you would, share your story with us. Thanks, Trey. I'm so excited to be here this morning. I just want to say thank you for giving me the opportunity to to shed some light on the fact that there is true hope and peace once you get on the other side of this. I grew up in a very conservative Christian family. Um, My father was a captain for Delta Airlines. My mother was an entrepreneur to the max. I grew up with two older brothers, 10 and 13 years older than me, and a little brother who was three years younger than me. 
my older brothers grew up in a household where my parents weren't Christians yet. My parents became Christians in their mid-30s. So the dynamic in the household that I grew up in was very different than with my brothers. And I mentioned that because the influences I got from them were from a very secular background rather than being positive Christian influences. Um, I looked up to my brothers. I took their advice. I wanted to be like them. And so at a very young age, I got to see what alcohol and drugs look like. I remember my first experience with alcohol was when I was four years old. And I mentioned that because I can remember that. I can remember the effects that it had on me, that it made me ill. But I also remember that I had some fun while it was happening. My next experience was when I was 15 years old at a wedding. And I mentioned that again only because I remember it being fun. My addiction and alcohol abuse didn't really start until my early 30s. I had suffered a knee injury in my early 20s, where my first experience with opiates came along. And at that point, I knew that they were going to be a part of my life in one way or the other. Hey, let me stop you right there. So what, what exactly? So you had a knee surgery in your early 20s. Is that, was it sports-related? or? Yeah, sports-related. And so you have the surgery, and then they pres- what did they prescribe you? Hydrocodone. Okay, so that was your first experience. You had it, and you just knew, just taking them as pain medication with no real thought of, you know, any type of, of illicit use or, you know, trying to, to, to get high, but you knew that you had, had found something that, that worked for you. Oh, absolutely. And I knew that it gave me also some peace. The next experience I had with opiates, which I would say was in my mid-20s, same thing, I got a prescription, same thing, hydrocodone. And then after that time, I figured out a way to order something offline. And so for the next five years, I self-medicated myself. During all this time, I had been in the music industry with my little brother. And we, I guess you could say, we partied, we acted like rock stars. And that's where the alcohol abuse kind of really started to rear its head. And so I mentioned all of that because I, I never expected this addiction and alcoholism to catch up with me. It was always just good times. So in my early 30s is kind of when all of this came to a culmination. I have a wife and five children who I love dearly. And between them and my parents and and my brothers, I was beginning to be told that I needed to lay off the drugs and the alcohol. But I didn't really want to heed anybody's advice. So right around 31 years old, I went to my first rehab. During all this time, I didn't think that I had a problem with my spirituality with God. I thought that because I a Christian household, I gave my life to Jesus at a very young age, that I was good. Um, I didn't need to further my relationship with God, that, that that was the last thing that I needed to be worried about. I came back from that rehab, and I was good for a little bit, then went to another rehab. This is when I, for me, really knew that things had kind of started to fall apart. Tensions with my wife started to get really bad, um, and my children had started to become of age where they 
notice what was going on. I had a sponsor in AA who I'd gotten close with, and I managed to string along uh, different months of sobriety, um, but I would always keep relapsing. So it became, at this point, the worst it had been. And between my sponsor and my wife and the rest of my family, I ended up at a long-term treatment down in South Georgia. During this time, my sponsor, who I thought had the best interest in mind for me, went basically behind my back and started wooing my family. And when I got back from that treatment, I had found out that there had been a lot of mistrust. And I'm not going to go into details about this, but let's just say that he had violated my family in a way that, to me, made him a predator. This anger built up inside of me. And after about six months of sobriety at this point, um, this built up and built up to where I went on a run that basically put to shame the rest of my addiction. And in those three months, I spent probably $15,000 on drugs and alcohol and ended up in another rehab. At this point, I was not welcome home anymore. And the tension between my wife and my children and the rest of my family were at an all-time high. I managed to string together another six months or so of sobriety. I did relapse um, on alcohol for a couple weeks, ended up in another detox, ended up living at my brother's house for about three months. My wife and I reconnected. I ended up back home. And at this point, I put together, let's call it 10 months of what I thought was good sobriety. I need to back up here just a little bit um, and explain a little bit about my spiritual life. Like I'd mentioned earlier, I fell in love with Jesus at a young age. Um, and into my late teens, read my Bible, did my devotions, prayed to Jesus on a daily basis. My brother and I had put together a band, and in my mid-20s, we started playing and started gaining a lot of success, ended up playing with some you know, highly recognized people in the music industry, and I thought for sure I was going to be a rock star on stage. And this during that time, I completely put my spirituality on the shelf and was no longer concerned at all with what God was telling me or my picture of God had become very tainted uh, to a point when I was somewhere around 34 years old. I remember having a conversation with my wife telling her, that I don't even think I believe there's a God anymore. And that was because the music career had started going south. I mentioned that again because during this newfound sobriety that I had put together for about 10 months, um, I thought that I had reconnected with God and, and started to put my spiritual life back together. But what I hadn't done is fallen back in love with Jesus. 
when I look back at that now, I realize what a crucial and uh, fatal flaw that was. So now we're up to 2018. Everything seemed to have been going okay. And I end up getting sick with uh, cellulitis. My body goes septic. I ended up in the hospital. I was treated for the cellulitis and was given a morphine drip. And so after being 10 months clean and, and this morphine drip starting, I knew something bad was about to happen. I remember my mom being in the hospital room begging the doctors not to give me morphine. And I think that she knew that if they did that, things were going to go south. And I remember telling my mom, no, mom, it's, it's not a big deal it's nothing's bad is going to happen. I can handle this. Sure enough, I leave the hospital with a bottle for, full of Percocet. And this is when all hell broke loose with, with my final relapse. I got online and I Googled how to find heroin in Atlanta. And at 38 years old, who had never seen or done heroin, found heroin within 12 hours and began a three-month journey straight into hell. I thought everything was going okay. I thought I could hide this. My relationship with my wife actually started getting better. But during this time, I remember standing in front of the mirror on two different occasions, looking at myself in the eyes and saying, you are going to lose everything if you continue to do this. And that happened on, on two different occasions. I remember it like it was yesterday. My family started to get suspicious, start asking me questions about why I had lost all this weight, you know, what was going on. It got to a point where I could no longer hide the sickness. Um, it had completely engulfed me. Walking around weighing 155 pounds, and for someone who's 6'1", it's supposed to weigh, you know, 190 it was obvious now that I needed medical help. And so I went back yet to another detox. During this time, during the 19 days that I was there, I got more angry at God than I'd ever been in my entire life. And I blamed him for what was going on. I was supposed to go to a rehab in Asheville, North Carolina. And the night before I was supposed to go, a guy named Troy who was helping me get into um, the next place I was going to go, you know, yet another place, came into my room at 12 o'clock and told me that my insurance was not going to be accepted for this place. And I had two options, this place called Good Landing Recovery or some place in the middle of Atlanta. And I remember telling him I'm not going to Atlanta because that's obviously, you know, the wrong decision, right in the middle of where I was getting all my drugs. And so I decided to go to Good Landing. I had no idea what Good Landing was other than I was going to get food, I could work out, and it was faith-based. I mentioned the faith-based part with emphasis because something inside of me was screaming and telling me that I needed God back in my life. Uh, on the way up to Good Landing, I was having a conversation with Rush. He again was telling me, you know, it's faith-based and 
I, I knew that God had intervened at this point and was directly placing me at Good Landing Recovery. I got to Good Landing and I was completely broken. I knew that everything was on the line. My marriage was on the line. My relationship with my kids was on the line. My relationship with my parents was on the line. I completely disconnected from my two older brothers at this point. Uh, my younger brother, who is my best friend in the world, uh, had also probably completely written me off. I remember the first week at Good Landing going to the Friday night service and having an encounter with Jesus unlike any that I'd ever had in my life. And at that moment, I rededicated my life to Christ and began up to now what is a spiritual journey that I cannot even explain. I'd, I've heard so many times of people being spoken to by God, and I've never had that happen to me in my life. Um, I've never felt the Holy Spirit in the room. I had never had any real conversations with God up until this point. Oh, man, there's so many vivid memories I have. I remember sitting on the front porch at 128 and God telling me, I've put you here for a reason. So during my time in Good Landing, I end up finding out that my wife has filed for divorce. That completely crushed me. I didn't know, you know, where my world was at this point. Um, and this is right in the midst of me having this encounter with Jesus. And I know for a fact that if I had gotten that news any other time, that I would have I would have run and ended up falling right back into my active addiction. But instead, I got on my knees and I, and I prayed to God. I didn't beg him to, to stop what was going on. I knew that I had deserved it. I remember having a conversation with my oldest daughter, and she told me, I don't think that you understand the pain and, and hurt that, that I'm experiencing, I've gone through. And I remember sitting back at that moment and going, no, I really have no idea. And I started to finally get a picture of the destruction and the damage I had left behind me. I mentioned all this with the fact that my family now is not falling apart. I'm, I'm separated from them, but I'm still okay. I'm in a place now with the Lord that I find strength and I find peace and a lot of love. And I'm surrounded by a lot of people who, who love and care about me. But I want somebody or whoever it is that's listening to this right now, I want you to know that there, there's time to stop. You can redirect your life right now and not end up in the position that, that I'm in. You can save your family. You know, and all this is still part of my journey. I'm so thankful to be here and, and be able to share this with everybody because I know that this is not the end of my story. Um, I almost feel in a sense like this is kind of just the beginning. For the first time in my life, I feel connected and a part of something that makes me feel almost like a, ch like a child again in a good way. Uh, I feel like my eyes are opened for the first time in my life. And I want, I want anybody who's listening to this to understand that there is so much hope and there is a peace to be found that passes all understanding. You know, now is your chance. Now is your time. 
and just stand up and put it behind you and be done with it. Thanks, Trey, for letting me be here today to share this. Um, I really hope that at least one person listening to this can can realize there is time to stop before a lot of damage is done. That's awesome, Daniel. Just so much was said there during your story from betrayal by a trusted mentor, um, the the consequences of active addiction and, and the price that so many of us have had to pay to see the broken relationships and to see just the, the, the collateral damage of, of a life spent outside the boundaries of God's will. But in the middle of that, still hope to know that your story is not done and that you're still walking these things out. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, we, we tell these stories with, you know, happily ever after, um, you know, five, ten years down the road. But I think that it's good. I think it's, it, you know, for, for people to listen and to, to see the, the reality of, you know, things, you know, haven't been completely fixed yet. But in the middle of that, you know, just, you know, just, just like you said, I mean, I think the language that you feel like a child um, of, of getting to, to really start life all over again and having real experiences and real relationships with God for the first time. And, you know, it just reminds me even in my own life of just how sweet those times are and that, you know, even though everything's not perfect in the way that we would like for it at this particular time during our lives, that God's at work and that we know that He's doing something so beautiful and bringing beauty from the ashes. You know, another thing that you know, really encourages me is, is, is how you've turned into this thing. And, you know, one of the telltale signs for me is that when, when people really get this thing, uh, that they, you know, they, they feel the, the weight of, of the mistakes. You know, it's not something that they just sort of selfishly, um, you know, have no regard for. And I've seen you just feel that pain and you know, watched you walk through as, as you've gotten the hard news and, you know, been in the room with you whenever you experience that. And, and, and your response to that is, you know, a person that is remorseful um, and, and that, you know, hates those consequences. Um, but then also somebody that has turned in to help other people. And that in the midst of that, you know, you didn't take you know, this season of where you just went self-absorbed and just just dealt with you or isolated, but you turned back in to be able to help other men and other people in the program. And 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 to me, that that's always the sign, is that as we get this thing, the, the way that we keep it is by giving it away. And, you know, that, that recovery and when God breaks into our life and pulls us out of active addiction, you know, there, uh, yeah, you know, the American dream and you know, money in the bank account and the house and all that kind of stuff. All this stuff's great, and and it's all you know part of the deal at some level. Um, you know, but the biggest thing is is that God rescues us to be rescuers and to go back in and to find somebody that's struggling. And the and from the perspective that you have of you know I've been there and I had every reason to go back out and numb the pain and go right back into Atlanta and do more heroin and just go ahead and check out because things aren't the way that 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 you want them to be right now but you're still fighting and you're continuing to do it you know even if the outcome is not the way that you would write the story um, 
But I do believe that God is doing something remarkable in your life, in everybody's life, too. That if you're listening today, if you're a family member, um, if you're somebody that's struggling in addiction, you know, it's my hope that you would just, that you would learn and that you would, would realize that it doesn't matter how far gone somebody is, that there's still hope. And that also, you know, that, there, that this is, um, that addiction has no Prejudice. It, it, it is not, it doesn't discriminate. I mean, you think about how he came up. I mean, his mom, an entrepreneur, I've met his parents, you know, his dad, a captain for Delta, and just, you know, some of the most precious, solid people that you would ever meet. And, and yet, still, Daniel, not exempt from this life. And the longer that we, you know, try to make sure that everything looks picture perfect on the outside and not deal, you know, with this beast of addiction that's hitting so many of our families, we have to remove that stigma and say, hey, somebody's sick and that I can't save my face and my butt at the same time. And if that means taking my kid or taking my spouse and doing whatever it takes to be able to get them into treatment. And, and, and you don't have to wait until somebody loses everything. That's something I always appreciated about my dad is that anytime that he would find out about me using, he had no problem jerking the rug out from under me. And that's why people look at me now and I tell them I was an IV methamphetamine drug addict. And you don't see that on my life because I had a family member that would shut that down anytime they could with any means necessary to force me into a place where at least I had a shot. And, you know, to see Daniel's family to get on a united front and say, hey, we love you, but here's what love's going to look like in this season to make sure that their son knew real freedom. And then Jesus faithful to meet him in that place and speak to him and to affirm him. And it's just been awesome to see the process. I hope you guys are encouraged today. It's been an honor to hear your story, Daniel. And we will do it again. Thank you, bro. Thanks a lot, man. Guys, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. It is a privilege and an honor to be able to serve you. If you or someone in your family is struggling with addiction, please give us a call. It's 770-570-7422.